<laughs> I was going to say, this morning I got here at church and I realized I didn't dress for a hoedown, but um, <laughs> what a good job. And that girl, she kills that last song. She, uh, she's wonderful at that. She's pretty cute too. That's my wife, Emmy. I'm not just a creepy guy up here flirting with the ladies in the band. Seriously, uh, I, hope, I hope you appreciate the work that those guys put in week in and week out to bring worship to you guys. They use their talents and their time. Chad and his uh, worship team, they're here at 7 o'clock every Sunday morning, and they're putting a lot of work and uh, time and talent into that, and I hope you appreciate those that lead worship for us here every week. Uh, good morning. And I, it's not too late to say, for me to say, Happy New Year. Uh, now, that's the question, right, is how late into the year, you know, you don't want to be saying Happy New Year in, say, February, but I think uh, January's still good. We're eight days into a new year. How many of you, show of hands, have set uh, some resolution or some goal that you have set for yourself in the new year? Anybody, show of hands? Uh, well, about 12 or 13 people. Um, <laughs> Y'all are wise, not too many of you. Um, I, read in, I read an article online this week ab about New Year's resolutions. I was just looking this up. I, th I think it's an interesting idea. This is what the first article said. As the calendar flips over to a new year, more than one-third of Americans, 37%, say that they will have a goal or resolution that they want to accomplish in 2023. Another 17% are unsure. They just can't make their minds up yet. It says Americans who are setting a goal are confident that they will keep their resolutions. In fact, 87% of people who set an objective say they are somewhat likely to keep it through the next year. A government poll that was taken between December 16 and 21st last month said that about one in five Americans have resolved to do at least one of the following things. Uh, to improve their physical health, to save more money, exercise more, eat healthier, be happy, or lose weight. Now, if you've ever made resolutions like this in the past, you know as well as I do that making them and keeping them are two totally different things. Another internet study uh, that I read this week on the subject put it this way. It said, it stated that 43% of all people making such New Year's resolutions are expected to fail before February. And that almost one in four quit within the first week of the year after setting their New Year's resolution. It went on to say that most people quit before the end of January and only 9% see their resolutions all the way through to completion. It seems that we often start a New Year out with good intentions only to eventually fall back into our same old routines and habits. 
It reminds me of a New Year's Day prayer that I read once. It goes like this. Dear Lord, so far this year I've done well. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or grumpy or selfish or overindulgent. And I'm very thankful for that. But Lord, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. See, I think it's interesting the way we often approach new things and approach the new year and approach our walk with Christ or maybe our goals to read the Word or to be in Scripture. But how often is it then that the old starts to creep in to the new? And eventually the old habits take over and, and we find ourselves, I find this a lot in my preaching, we find ourselves needing reminders of sometimes the basic truths and the basic principles because we get busy, we get distracted, we get whatever. And sometimes the, the greatest reminders for the church are not new truths and new teachings, but they are things that really we've known for some time but we need reminders of the truths of God's Word. So today we're going to be studying from the Psalms. If you've got your Bible, you can pretty much just flip to the middle of it. Yep, there we go. That's the Psalms right there. Um, we're going to be studying Psalm chapter 24 today. I love to study the Psalms, which are basically songs of praise written to God. Some of them are what we call songs of lament, or maybe mourning. Some of them are, are more on the positive side. They're psalms of celebration, uh, of adoration, of worship. But basically, these are songs that are written from man to God. These are songs of praise and worship that are written from us to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Many of those psalms in the book of Psalms are written by King David. The son of Jesse, the king of Israel, and that's one of the ones that we're going to read today. We're going to look at Psalms chapter 24. I noticed something this week when I was studying. Uh, a lot of times I, look, uh, I like to look at different versions and translations and see how other editors and writers put the, the verses that we know. And I noticed something in both the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the Christian Standard Bible, which kind of came from the same source. Maybe you have one of those today. I was looking at the Psalms, and I'd never noticed before, but these translations actually give each Psalm a title at the top of the page. They have a theme or a title for each of the 150 Psalms, and today's Psalms 24, the title they've given it, is the title that I've given the message today as well, the King of Glory. So let's take a look at Psalm chapter 24 verses 1 through 10, where David tells us about the king of glory. Let's read it together. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? Of glory. The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. May God bless the reading of His Word today. Psalms 24 begins with one of those truths. One of those truths that really is not anything new. Probably as a Christian, it's not groundbreaking information for you. And yet it is a fundamental truth of Scripture. And I think if you want to better approach this new year that we've just entered, we would be wise to take this truth at heart, to heart today. It's the first line in your notes and you're filling the blanks on the back of the bulletin. Here's this fundamental truth we're going to take a look at today from Psalms chapter 24. It's this, everything belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been in Christ any amount of time, if you've spent your life in church, if this is not new to you, then this is probably not a groundbreaking, oh, I never thought of that kind of truth. This is pretty, this is pretty fundamental to the Word of God. And yet today I want us to take a look at it and not just the truth for belief, but also for practice and for application in our lives. Look at verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 24 again where he starts this psalm. David says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Think about it for just a moment. Try to, try to wrap your head around the, the, the importance and the truth of that verse for just a minute. The idea that everything that we have, everything that we see, everything on this earth, he says even the world in, and then even all who live in it belong to the Lord. This is the truth today. There is nothing that you know. There is nothing that you see. There is nothing that you have. There is nothing that you can experience that does not ultimately belong to God. See, I think as Christians, we understand that this is true. And yet sometimes we fail to see all the implications of such a truth that everything is God's. And today, that really, if we are followers of God, if we are believers and obeyers in God's Word, then this truth should change the way that we live our lives. Let's look at it on two different levels today. This idea, this truth, that everything belongs in, uh, to God. 
Uh, number one, in your notes it says, let's look at it on a global level. That's where he starts here in Psalms 24.1, saying that the earth, the world, he's using global terms. It all belongs to God. Look at what Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14 says. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. This truth ought to change everything that we think, the way that we view the world around us. David says that the entire earth belongs to God. Deuteronomy says that not just the earth, but the heavens, and even the furthest heavens that you can imagine, everything as far as you can go, as much as you could see, if we built a telescope that would see the end of all things, every bit of it belongs to God. And this truth doesn't just extend to things we can see, or physical things either. Look at what Job 12 verse 13 says, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. You think you have power? Scripture says that's not yours, that belongs to God. You think that you have wisdom? If you have wisdom, it is a gift from God. It is something that has been granted to you from God for the very standards of these things. The standards of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of power come from God himself. That's why we struggle with things like justice and mercy and love, and what do these things mean? But the truth is, they can't be defined by how we view them. They must be defined by the one who created and has given us all these things. And so God is the standard of love, of mercy, of justice, of righteousness, of holiness. God, all these things belong to God. Look at Job 25 verse 2. It says, dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Think of the order and the structure and the boundaries in your life. Everything that is set the way that it is set, that is from God Himself. The idea that we exist in a part of time, the whole structure of time itself, with a God who is timeless, with a God who was and is and is to come, all these boundaries, all these things that we know, all the capabilities that we have of understanding belong to God. There's places in Scripture where it says that God Himself puts a veil in front of some people so that they don't understand. Because even understanding is in the purview of God. All of these things belong to God alone. But this truth extends beyond that global level to the second level we're going to look at today in your notes. And this is true on a personal level as well. Think about applying this truth not just to the heavens and the earth and the, the skies and the seas, but let's get personal for a moment and apply this to your 
very life. Look at Malachi chapter 2 verse 15. It says, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. Think about the implications of that truth for a moment. Has not God, the one God, God himself made you? Do we believe that truth today? Scripture says you, your life, you belong to him in both body and spirit. So tell me, church, what's one area of your life then that does not belong to God? Psalms 139 verse 16 says this. This is, again, David speaking to God. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You see, I think medicine is a blessing from God. I think doctors are a blessing from God. But I think sometimes with such things, we get this idea that somehow we're holding on to and we're in control of our life. That if we just make a couple of more different decisions or that if somehow we saw a doctor earlier or if somehow we, saw, we, we got a second opinion that somehow we could have saved that life or somehow we could have prolonged those days. Just a couple of weeks ago, my, my sisters and, and brother and mom, we made the decision to put my dad under hospice care. And he passed away, and we had his funeral. And, and in those moments, you know what the truth is? We are powerless because life does not belong to me. Scripture says that every one of my dad's days, every one of your days, every one of my days was written in God's book before I was even born. How then can I claim any kind of control or authority over the life that I've been given? Uh, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 through 20. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? Look at what he says. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, Paul says. And then look what he says in verse 20. He says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, here's the truth today. If all the things that I have and all the things that I know and all the things that somehow I have come to think I am in control of are truly under the control of God, then that gives me a responsibility as to how I live my life. That gives me a responsibility in being faithful with, in honoring God with my body, my mind, my pursuits, my plans, my very life. If I somehow owned this which, what, which I was given, if I was owner of this life, well, that may change the story. But the truth is, I'm responsible to honor God with all that I have and have been given because it wasn't mine in the first place. Look at the next truth that's in your 
notes that goes right along with what we've been talking about. It's the next thing that he says in Psalms 24, everything was created by the Lord. Not only does everything belong to God, but why is that? Look at Psalms 1, uh, 24, 1 and 2 again. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Why is that? Why does he have control over all things? Look at verse 2. For he founded it on the seas, and he established it on the waters. Talk about a fundamental truth. This is the very first truth that we find in Scripture. When you open to Genesis 1 and verse 1, that's the very first verse that you find. It's not up here. You ought to know it. In the beginning, what happened, church? God created the heavens and the earth. Why wouldn't the God who created those heavens and that earth be in complete control and charge of those heavens and that earth? This is a truth that is at that is under attack today. We know it. We know that there's a truth against creationism. There's a truth against that Genesis account, sometimes even within the church. But let me tell you this today, church. This is not a war over whether the earth was created or whether evolution reigns. This is not a, a fight simply between creationists and Big Bang theorists. This is a fight for who is in control of your life. Because if it came from somewhere else, then we could say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're just all floating in the earth here. It's all just randomly happened. Who cares who's in charge of this life? But if there was a creator, if there is a God who by the breath of his mouth created everything that we see, then your life, your home, your family, everything you have belongs to him. And that is a truth, church, not just for believing, but that is a truth that has got to permeate the way that we live our lives. In the book of Job, Job and his friends have been asking questions of God after Job's suffering and the things that he has seen. And for several chapters, these friends of Job and Job, they go around and around asking questions about God and about who's in charge and about why does God allow these things to happen. And finally, God shows up at the end of the book of Job. And when he does, he has some questions of his own that he asks Job. Let's look at Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 11. These are God's questions to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, Job, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. 
Think about it today. Do we, do you bear any credit for what you have, for what you see, for what has happened in your life, or does it all belong to God? And if you believed that, wouldn't that change the way you live your life? And here's the truth of application today. It's the next line in your notes. This is what that truth then does for us. Ours, therefore, your note says, is not a position of ownership, but of stewardship. In viewing everything that we have, everything that we've been given, all that is ours, our position then, if God owns it all, if it all belongs to Him, if it was all created by Him, then at best I'm not owner of anything. I'm a steward of what God has given me. You see, we are not the sole proprietors of what we have. If you spend 30 years paying off your mortgage on your house, Scripture says it still belongs to God. I am at the best a steward, a caretaker of what God has given me. Think back to the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. We call it the parable of the talents where a wealthy man goes on a journey, and before he does, he calls in his servants. Jesus says that he entrusted his wealth to them. That the master entrusted his wealth to them. And by handing that portion off to them, that didn't make them the master. That didn't all of a sudden give them ownership. Instead, Jesus says at the end... This master came back to settle accounts with these servants. Because even in their control and under their hands and under their guidance, these things still belonged to the master. And they were responsible for their care. And so today, in light of this truth that everything belongs to God... That everything you have is simply on loan from God. Then let's ask a practical question as we begin a new year. Are you being faithful with everything the Master has given you? Think about it. Notice not a lot of heads are nodding either way or the other. Think about that truth for a moment. Are you being faithful with everything that God has given you? Because the truth is, everything we have, everything we see, everything we touch, everything we experience and love and cherish belongs to God. So are you being faithful as a steward, as a caretaker of what you've been given? What about with your home? What about with your family? What about with your marriage? 
Are you taking care of your marriage in a way that would honor God? Are you taking care of and raising your children in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to God? What about with your possessions and with your finances? Or is that your stuff? Because you've done a good job of accumulating all those things. Or is everything you have a gift from God above? James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from the Father. So are you, are you being faithful with your possessions? Are you being faithful with your money? If there was a, a situation that came up where God could be honored with your money, are you ready to let go of it? Or is that part of your life yours? Here's a big one that hits me in the gut every time. What about your time? What about with your time? Because, see, we only even have time because that's a construct that we've been given by God. And so if the God who created, who decided that 60 seconds would be a minute and 60 minutes would be an hour and 24 hours would be a day and 365 of those days would be a year and he already knows how many years and months and days are in your life, then are you being faithful with the time that you have? Are you honoring God with the days however brief they may be, that you've been given. What about with your resources? What about with your talents? What about with your thoughts, with your ideas, with your efforts, your ambitions, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, your goals? Are you being faithful with your life? And here's the test. Because you know what? I don't see a lot of heads shaking. Oh, yep, yes, I am. I really am. And here's the test. If God asked you to give him any one of these things so that he could use them for his glory, for his kingdom, and for his will to be accomplished in your life, could you yield that area of your life to him, knowing that it all came from God and it all belongs to him anyway? Or are the things of God, the things that God has given you from his abundance, just a means by which to increase your wealth and your plans and your goals? If God came at the beginning of January and said, you know what, that Christmas bonus that you had earmarked for your things, that's actually, I want that to go to your neighbor who just lost his job. Would we be faithful in yielding those things to God for God's glory and for God's kingdom and for God's will, understanding they're not ours, or are we holding on to everything that we've got? as if it belonged to us in the first place. You see, this truth 
of ownership, this, this responsibility of stewardship in our own lives, it really causes us to see that in light of God and what I've been given, that I really don't stand a chance. I don't meet his criteria. And so it leads to the next question in Psalms chapter 24 that the psalmist asks. It's in your notes. It's from Psalm 24, verse 3. Let's look at it. He says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? It's a question we really need to ask. Because if I'm taking inventory of my life, if I'm seeing all these places that God has given me, uh, has entrusted me, that I'm failing here and I'm failing here and I'm not as faithful with my body or my finances or my family as I should be, then the more that I compare my life to Christ, the more that I compare my life to the God of the universe, the more that I fall short. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is where he answers this question. He says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4 says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false gods. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Anybody going to raise your hand on that one? What is it to swear by an idol? What is it to, to trust in an idol? Terry just spent three weeks talking about worship and what true worship is in spirit and in truth. What's the opposite of worship? Idolatry. It's not just graven images and pagan sacrifices like we find in the Old Testament. Do you know practically what an idol is in your life? An idol is any area in your life where you're still hanging on for all that you can to control that thing. Instead of giving it up freely to the one who's given it to you. So the question becomes troublesome, really. Who can climb up to the mountain of the Lord? Who can, who can even stand in the presence of God? Who can stand in His holy place? Look at what Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 says. Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And so you see, when I start to really take inventory of my life, of everything that God has created, of everything that God has given me, of everything that I have, of every blessing that is mine in Christ, of everything with which He has entrusted me, then I start to see that I'm not good, that I'm not righteous, I'm not faithful, I fall away. Paul says we all have turned away. We've all become worthless. No one is good. 
Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who could stand in the presence of God? And yet look at what he says in Psalms 24, verses 5 and 6. They will receive the blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation, what generation church? Of those who seek him. Of those who seek your face, God of Jacob. And so David, the psalmist, asks a very important question. <clears throat> who can even approach God, the creator of the universe, the God to whom all things belong? Who can even approach him? Who can stand in his presence? But he doesn't leave us in despair. He says, the one who has a pure heart, the one who has clean hands, those who seek the Lord will find their vindication in him will find their blessing in him. And so it leads us today as we close to the all-important question. It's the next in your notes. Who then can approach the Lord? If I fail in stewardship, if I fail in taking care of, of what God has given me, if I fail in holding back parts of my life in idolatry and worship of things that are of me and not of God, then who is it that is able to approach the Lord? You see, when we truly compare our lives with who God is, with the truths of Scripture, it doesn't take long before we realize that we just don't measure up. You know what? That's, that's why the world has other standards. That's why the world is rejecting this as its standard. You know why? Because when I put my feet on the foundation of God's Word, when I line my life up with the Word of God, I don't, I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. And so the world goes out and finds other standards and finds other truths so that I look better. Because my life will never match up on its own. And so in Scripture, we're often led to this question, who among us can even approach God? And as he closes the psalm, Psalm 24, the psalmist gives us the answer. Who can approach God? The answer is the King of glory. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, lift up your head, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. 
I read something this week that said that uh, these, we we mentioned before that these psalms are songs, and many of them were used in worship and in temple worship for the, the Israelites, for the Hebrews in those days, and that this one in particular was used between the people and the priests, that the people of God would come and they would approach the gates of the temple, and the gates of the temple would be shut, and the people on the outside of the temple would say, Open the gates that the king of glory may come in. And behind the gates, behind the temple courts, the the priests and those in robes would say, Who is this king of glory? And you know what? In those days, we're talking about standing in the presence of God. We're talking about approaching the throne of God. In those Old Testament days, there was one who could stand in the presence of God. And it it was the high priest. There was one who could offer sacrifices. There was one who could approach God. And guess what? Even they were unable to be holy and righteous. Paul says that's the very reason that Jesus came. Because on our own, even the highest of priests cannot approach the holiness and the glory of God. The psalmist says, this king of glory, this is the Lord Almighty, and yet we can easily see something else here, can't we? We can easily see that this is one of those messianic psalms that starts to point us to Jesus. Because if, if, the, if the God of the universe created all these things, and then the question is asked, who then can approach him, well, why do we need a king of glory? Why do we need one who is to come? Why do we need one who, who is going to open those doors and come in? Because on our own, we are powerless to approach God in His glory and His grace and His mercy and His rightness and His holiness and His justice. And so how do we approach this king? How do we approach the God of heaven? We mentioned earlier that in the Holman Christian standard and and the Christian standard versions, that king of glory, this is the title of this psalm. What's interesting to me is that the 24th psalm, which we've read and studied today, is the only place in all of scripture where this particular four-word phrase is found. The king of glory. Now, it talks about God's glory throughout Scripture, and many times God is listed as a king, described as a king on his throne, but only in Psalms 24 do we find this phrase, the king of glory. That word glory means more than what we think. That word glory means majesty and riches and abundance. This is the king that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is the king that owns the space beyond what we'll ever be able to see. This is the king who created everything. And how, church, can we approach such a rich and majestic king? The last question in your notes today is this. How can we give this year to the Lord? 
How can we make this year a year where Will's not in charge anymore? How can we make this a year where I do my level best to give what God has given me back to him in a way that he could use me in a way that he's never used me before? How do we give this year to the Lord? Here's the answer. Let the king of glory come in. Let the king of glory come in. Our last scripture today is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. And I, wanna, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in these verses. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and I sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears today, church, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to ask Chad and the band to come out today. And as we do, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about this year, and I want you to think about what, what it really might look like. If you committed to give your life and your year and your plans and your hopes and your family and your dreams and your ambitions and everything that you had to the one who gave them to you in the first place. Really, the truth is I can't give anything to God. I can't give my life to God. At best, I'm yielding it back to the one who gave it to me. At best, I, my faithfulness is just an acknowledgement that everything I am and everything that I have has come from God. In the book of Revelation, there's this scene around the throne room of God. In chapter 5, and it's a scene of mourning and pain and sorrow because they're all looking around and they're all weeping and they're all saying, here's a scroll, but nobody's worthy to open the scroll. Who would open the scroll? Who would reveal the things of God? Who would bring redemption to the world? And all of a sudden, in that chapter, it turns from this bleak, passage of mourning to this to this scene of rejoicing and hope because there in the corner sits a broken down lamb and the rejoicing starts because there is one who is worthy there is a lamb of God who was worthy to open the scrolls who was worthy to lay down his life who was worthy to redeem the world from the fact that I'm never on my own going to measure up who is this king of glory who allows me to approach the throne of grace with confidence who allows me in my brokenness and my sin and my selfishness to have life who is this king of glory church his name is Jesus your life is his and he's your only chance 
to approach God. And so today, as we come to this time of invitation, what's God calling you to do? What parts of your life are you still holding on to? What parts of your life don't have the full control and the full oversight of God? What parts do you foolishly think you're holding on to? What do you think you're in control of? So today, he allows us to approach him. Not because I'm good, but because he's good. So open your hearts today. I don't know what is on your heart. I don't know what the Lord's calling you to do. But church, open your hearts that the King of glory may come in. He is the King of glory. His name is Jesus. Let's stand and worship today.